Okay. You'll want to turn in the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 4 while you're turning there. Mind you again, thanks to Jen for sharing. And if you would like to be part of Dana's team, uh, we would love for that to happen. Help uh, her to successfully uh, navigate children's church. So that would be great. Uh, I'm not going to read uh, the whole thing. It's 43 verses. I will as we go through. But right now I'm going to read some representative verses from the chapter uh, that hit some of the high points. So please listen carefully. Uh, the first two verses of Deuteronomy 4. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them. that You may live and go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. We've jumped to verse 9. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. And then jumping down to verse 30, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for the book of Deuteronomy and thank you for making us your people. You have brought us to this Old Testament sermon that introduces the law. And you tell us that it's based on the love of God. Usually we come to the law and we feel guilty. So we ask you this morning to help us to understand your words so that we can come to the law and find grace. And as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it takes to love and obey your word. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to know God more and see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, do you ever look at your life and see all the changes looming on the horizon and wonder if things are going to be okay? I mean, if you live long enough, you are going to see some momentous events in our world, which you know will bring about massive change and will cause you to wonder about the consequences of those changes. How will this affect us? 
Is this going to make things better or worse? What's going to happen? And we wonder if it will be okay. Now, I can think of a few occasions in my life where those types of momentous events happened and you just knew things were going to be different from now on. But you didn't know if they'd be better or worse. You didn't know what was going to happen and so you wondered, is it going to be okay? I have a vague memory of the assassination of President Kennedy. I was only five years old at the time and I was home watching cartoons and eating ice cream because I had just had my tonsils out. And uh, you have your tonsils out back in 1963, you get ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I thought that was a fair trade. But I was sitting there watching cartoons, eating my ice cream. We didn't have all the flavors. I think it was, you could have vanilla or chocolate. Um, and I'm watching cartoons and the TV all of a sudden cut off and Newsman came on. And I don't actually remember much about the news story itself. Uh, most of what I know is from having read about it uh, later. But I vividly remember my mom coming over and sitting next to me on the couch and crying. So I knew something bad happened. And in some ways, that was the beginning of the cultural upheaval that became the 1960s. And so for many of my growing up years, the question was, where were you when JFK was shot? I also remember the fall of the Berlin Wall in November of 89. I was in seminary at the time and I was still in the Army Reserves. And back in the 80s, much of the Army trained for what was considered going to be the next great war in Europe. The idea that the Soviets would attack NATO across the plains of central Germany was simply viewed as inevitable. And in those days, you know, we didn't have up to the second news cycle streaming through social media, so it took a while to figure out what it all meant. But I remember sensing the world is changing, and change it did. Eventually, the leader of the USSR was replaced and the Soviet Union fell apart. Then, of course, 20 years ago, we had 9-11. And once again, everything changed. The global war on terror grew exponentially and continued for 20 years, impacting all aspects of life and travel, most of which we still live with today. And those are just three examples, momentous events that brought change. You can probably think of several more. And whenever changes like that happen, people wonder if it's going to be okay. What's the next cycle of leadership going to be like? Will things improve, stay the same, or get worse? What's going to be the story? Is it going to be okay? Well, the book of Deuteronomy opens with Moses giving the people of Israel notice that change is coming. He is going to step aside and Joshua would take over. And the people will finish their wilderness wanderings and they're going to take possession of the promised land. Change is imminent. But Moses is all they've known. 
The wilderness is the only place they've called home. And the world is about to change, and for them to embrace that change, they need courage. And they have to be wondering, is it going to be okay? So Moses frames what's coming next in the context of their larger ongoing story. God has not abandoned them. And just as you wonder what may be coming around the corner in your life, in Deuteronomy, God's people wondered if it was going to be okay with all the changes happening around them. And the Lord reminds them, as he reminds us, that we're in the middle of a story that he's writing, a story that he directs, the outcomes of which he's going to bring about in his own appointed time. Nothing surprises God, and nothing is too difficult for him. And as sure as he takes care of Israel, he takes care of us. So Moses is concluding the main historical introduction of the book here. And Deuteronomy 4 contains a, a substantial address given by Moses. It's essentially a sermon to the people. And it expounds on a number of themes that are going to be given increasing prominence in uh, Moses' preaching throughout this book. Primarily, his message is about the character and work of God. Before the people enter the land, it is of great importance they understand who God is, what God has said, and what God can do. They need to fully understand the uniqueness of their God before they invade a land littered with other gods. And if they're going to survive the days ahead, it can only be by knowing God as carefully and accurately as possible. In Canaan, they're going to see hundreds of idols, other gods. But if they wish to conquer and keep the land, they have to look to the God who they can't see. And so today, we confront idols to be sure, and there are still hundreds of idols out there, and our society is creating more all the time. And if we are going to survive the days ahead, it can only be by knowing God as carefully and accurately as possible. So how do we do that? Well, same way the Israelites do. Moses is gonna lay out for us three critical ways to know God. The first of which is through our faithfulness to God's word, starting at verse one through verse 14, our faithfulness to God's word. And as I read this, listen to all the commands that are in these verses. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the uh, Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, 
Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. It was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you may do them in the land that you are going over to possess. This section is filled with commands. We see listen, keep, do, and teach God's word. But if you think about it, that's not how we would expect Moses to start. We would expect them to start by reminding them of everything that's happened in the past when they failed to enter the promised land the first time and then exhort them, don't do that again. But Moses is a wise leader. He knew the people are tempted to look ahead, knowing they're very aware of the giants in the land. He knew the people are tempted to look around knowing they can see their own slender resources and feeling dwarfed by the military strength and the massive fortifications of the Canaanites. He knew the people were tempted to look within, knowing their hearts failed them out of fear. He knew the people are tempted to look back, knowing that they thought it might even be better to go back to Egypt. And even when they did think about God, they have this uh, pathetically distorted image of him. Back in Deuteronomy 1.27, it says, Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. And Moses comes to him today to say that nothing could be further from the truth. So now Moses wants them to look up to the one true God and to know him. And the primary way one knows God is through the revelation of himself as found in his word. Furthermore, this section lays a firm foundation for later teaching in the book about God's revealed truth. Its verses emphasize that the word of God has great benefits for us. And just look at those benefits uh, quickly. First, it's spiritually beneficial. The law was designed to impart life. Verse one, now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live. It was never intended to be this tedious list of unwelcome prohibitions. God knows that if men and women are to enjoy life, certain rules will always be necessary. Pressurized labor conditions with no opportunity for relaxation, child disobedience, 
family breakdown, murder, infidelity, theft, lying, legal malpractice, covetousness are not the usual ingredients for living happily in any society. And those are the main community prohibitions uh, found in the Ten Commandments. But the law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, begins not with a list of prohibitions, but with a declaration of God's uniqueness and his saving achievement. We're going to see that next week, Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It begins not with what a person should or shouldn't do, but with what the Lord has already done. His enslaved people in Egypt were under the sentence of death, but God delivered them from bondage. He gave them life, and he wanted them to continue to enjoy life, and it's for this reason he provides this unique word to instruct them in the way of life. So it is spiritually beneficial. Second, it's obligatory. It's personally obligatory. The law is designed to inform us, enlighten us, and motivate us to both honor it and obey it. Every part of it is important. It confronts us with serious responsibilities. Mo Moses urges them and us to attend to the message. He says, listen, verse 1. He wants us to obey the commands. He says, do them, also in verse 1, but about five more times in the chapter. To recognize the source, he says, these are the commandments of the Lord, verse 2. He wants us to honor its authority. He says, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, also verse 2. And he wants to prove its value. He says, this will be your wisdom and your understanding, verse 6. Now, throughout the centuries, just to pick one of those, people have made the colossal mistake of adding to or subtracting from or changing the wording or simply ignoring the word of God. They sit in judgment on it instead of submitting itself to uh, its judgment. And this warning by Moses is certainly necessary. Addition and subtraction took place even within the Hebrew religious tradition. During Christ's ministry, the Pharisees added to the word of God a detailed prohibitions not contained in scripture. At the same time, the Sadducees subtracted from the word all the things they found unacceptable. Anything about the supernatural, the doctrine of resurrection. We see that in Acts 23. It says, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Pharisees are the first century legalists, and the Sadducees were the destructive rationalists of their day. But it would be a mistake to think that the dangers of adding or taking away from the word of God are confined to the past. We make similar mistakes, but just because they're less public doesn't mean that they're less serious. Believers add to God's word when we make rules about things on which scripture is silent. We also take away from God's word whenever we ignore or disobey what God is saying. And when we do that, what we're saying in effect is, as far as we're concerned, that scripture doesn't apply to us. So Moses is warning God's people about these dangers and clearly prohibits them from adding to or taking away from God's word. Moreover, he knew that some people just 
uh, simply ignore God's word. And so he draws attention to the disastrous, disastrous effects of that kind of behavior. He reminds the people in verse 3, he said, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the, the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. So back in Numbers 25, some Israelite men had relationships with Moabite women, which led them to participate in Baal worship, and they ended up bowing down to pagan idols. And the Lord sent a plague on the camp, and all the offenders were killed. And so Moses contrasts those who died as an act of judgment and those who held fast to the Lord your God, and he says, you are all alive today. So they can hear this message and heed this warning. The people who gave in to Baal and worshiped the pagan idols, they're all dead. And he's illustrating, he's using this contrast to illustrate the way of life and the way of death. So that's the second thing, we are obligated. Third, it's universally attractive. God's word is universally attractive. His word not only changes us, but it makes a profound impact on unbelieving neighbors. Moses told his contemporaries when the people of other nations, end of verse six, and then again in verse eight, he says, when they hear all these statutes, they'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And then in verse eight, what, and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Now the Apostle Peter drew on uh, this imagery in Deuteronomy when he emphasized what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do. And he basically said, we're supposed to be and do what Israel was supposed to be and do. First Peter 2.9, he said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then I said last week, those are Old Testament titles that Peter is now applying to the church. But he says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Deuteronomy anticipates the time when God's people would be a missionary people. And here Moses says that God's word will become his primary instrument in making his name known to other people's and other nations. Moreover, unbelievers would recognize that God doesn't instruct his people from a distance. Look at verse seven. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And finally, God's word is significant for the family. The law is to be received by the individual and treasured within the uh, families. Verse nine, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget to the individual, and then make them known to your children and your children's children, to the family. And then verse 10, we see it's significant for corporate worship. This is a great passage. Uh, uh, I, I used this at the beginning of my uh, preaching course. This is what God tells Moses to do. Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and they may teach their children so. So the first way Moses tells us how to know God 
is through our faithfulness to God's word. Secondly, Moses tells us we come to know our God through our faithfulness to God himself. Verses 15 to 28, our faithfulness to God himself. It says there, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and I should not enter the good land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, you must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image, the form of anything, by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Our faithfulness to God is most clearly seen by his prohibitions against worshiping anything that is not God. There is a huge emphasis in the Old Testament in general, and in Deuteronomy in particular, against idolatry. And he has rightly insisted that they acknowledge his uniqueness as the only true God by promising not to offer themselves to any other gods. It's one of Deuteronomy's most prominent themes. To become allied to an alien power is to act corruptly, he says that in verses 16 and 25. And he says it's doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to promote, promote, provoke him to anger. Also verse 25. And this warning about breaking the covenant by worshiping other gods, again, it's certainly necessary then and now. Back then, the Israelites, the constant battle of the Old Testament was against idolatry. We see it over and over and over again. And once the people are in the promised land, idolatry becomes a constant snare. 
Idols are inadequate because God is far too majestic and far too transcendent to be crudely represented by a statue or by nature in Moses' day. And he's too majestic and transcendent to be represented by differing ways of life or alternative philosophies in our day. And need I remind you, our culture is awash in narcissism, worship of self, hedonism, worship of pleasure, and materialism, worship of possessions. To worship idols, either theirs or ours, is to minimize God's greatness and glory. It is a blatant insult to his deity and a blasphemous attempt to reduce God's to the narrow confines of the human imagination. And it's for this reason that when Moses recalls the events at Sinai, he says Horeb in Deuteronomy, it's the same place, Mount Sinai, he repeats the fact that the Hebrew people actually met with God. Verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Idols feed the mind with wrong ideas about God. God is sovereign, he rules over the world and acts where and when he wishes. And idols create the impression, since they're located in a particular place, they're restricted to a measurable area that they can be controlled and therefore God can be controlled and manipulated. The Bible tells us that God is immortal, living and active. Idols are lifeless, perishable, doomed to decay. God is creator, the maker of all creation and everything in it. But when people make representations of the things that God has made, they worship the creature rather than the creator. God is love, eager to speak to his people and listen to their cry. But idols are, verse 28, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Moses already made the point that the surrounding nations are gonna identify three outstanding things about Israel's God. Unlike their silent, immobile, uh, deaf idols, Israel's God talks to his people, he comes to his people, and he hears his people when they pray. We come to know God through faithfulness to God's word, through faithfulness to God himself by the rejection of all idolatry. And third, Moses tells us we come to know God through our faithfulness to God's work. Our faithfulness to God's work, starting at verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. And in verse 33, he's talking about all the other peoples. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? The answer is no, just you. 
Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being an enmity with him in time past. He may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, uh, Ramot and Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan and Bashan for the Massonites. So Moses starts by talking about God's goodness to them. Verse 30, in the latter days. God's threat to cast them out of the land is not going to be an act of vindictive punishment, but an expression of refining love. He knows that in their prosperity, they're going to quickly forget him. And only adversity will bring them to their senses. So despite all these warnings, they're going to forget God. And yet he promises that even though he knows they're going to forget him, he promises, verse 31, that he will not forget them. It says, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So even when we forsake God, he will not forsake us. He loves his people so much that he cannot bear for them to be away from him. And then Moses makes us look at all the things that God does. He asks his people to reach back in history to see if anyone has heard of greater things than what God has done for his people. And being reminded of his mercy in the past encourages our present repentance. They're to recall uh, God's mighty acts as creator. Verse 32, God created man on the earth. As revealer, verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? And Redeemer, verse 34, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation from himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So we're told he made us, he speaks to us, he delivers us. And those who turn from their sins, remember with gratitude, he's welcomed sinners before. And moreover, he changes them. 
that mighty arm and our mighty hand and outstretched arm will continue to reach out to all who acknowledge their need for forgiveness and reconciliation. And therefore Moses presents the people with a portrait of God which meets the needs of repentant sinners. And he ends the message by describing the love of God. First, he establishes that God's love is unique. The Lord who loved their fathers is the only God. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. The gods their neighbors worship and the idols um, which even God's people eventually come to serve, says they are nothing. They're simple projections of human want. They're incapable of love because they have no substance in reality. And once they enter the land, some of the Israelites are going to break the covenant and give themselves over to Baal, the agricultural god of the Canaanites. But Baal can't possibly love them. He doesn't even exist. He's not real. Second, Moses establishes that God's love is vocal. It's one of the differences between our God and most gods. Our God speaks to us and listens to us. We're not left to guess at God's nature and hope that we'll be loved. He tells us, verse 36, out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. God speaks in a variety of different circumstances because he wants us to know how much he loves us. After all, verse 33 again, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? But you lived because God loves you. Now, there are times, no matter how supportive, words are not enough. And so Moses establishes that God's love is visual. Quite naturally, the Hebrew people want to see God in action. They knew from Exodus and from Numbers that he could speak to his people, and through Moses, he had spoken to them. But they want to see God at work in their own time, and they did. In the Exodus, he manifests his presence and demonstrates his power, starting at verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. How could they possibly doubt God's love when he has done so much for them? Fourth, he establishes this love continues. God's love is ongoing. I mean, some people might be tempted to say, okay, I'm convinced God proved his love for our parents, but how can we be sure that he loves us? And here, Moses says God acted redemptively in the past, not only because he loved their fathers, but also because he loved them. Let's look back again at verse 37. It says right in the middle, he chose their offspring after them. God loved the fathers and God chose their offspring after them. That fits very well with the theme of this day. 
the people who are going to enter the land are loved just as much as those who won't enter it, including Moses. God's love is not confined to one generation. He loves the descendants as well as the ancestors. He loves us as much as he loved them. And Moses closes by reminding um, the people that God's love is relevant. It's not simply a doctrinal topic about revelation and redemption in the past. It's so relevant that the last three verses, 41 to 43, include the location of cities of refuge for the two and a half tribes that have already been given their land. The other tribes will be given cities of refuge in Deuteronomy 19. And here Moses is simply demonstrating his obedience to the word of God because God commanded him to do this back in Numbers 35. So Moses was told to do this, now he does it. The city of refuge is uh, where anyone who killed someone accidentally would go for protection until the case was brought before a judge. Blood feuds were common in the ancient Near East and an innocent offender would be in immediate danger from the angry relatives of the victim. So this kind of legal protection is provided by a God who not only loves his people, but wants them to be treated with justice. And these details about the justice system in Israel, they, they sort of seem out of place, coming as a footnote to this sermon on God's love. But these verses remind us that God's promises are already coming true. God had already given his people a portion of the land. God is already in the process of establishing a new kind of society which would be marked by grace and truth, righteousness and mercy. Now, as Christians today, we pray, often without even thinking about it, thy kingdom come. In the expectation, if we actually did think about it, that, and I'm gonna quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 102, our expectation is that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and the kingdom of grace may be advanced and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. These are future events, but the kingdom of God doesn't just lie in the future. Christ is already king. For all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, Matthew 28. And while many people and nations refuse to submit to his rule, his kingdom is a present reality. From a small beginning, it's grown over the centuries and its influence will fill the world. There are more Christians alive today than at any time in known history. And while we think things are getting worse in our country, and they probably are, the kingdom is expanding immensely around the world. And kingdoms that are now hostile to Jesus will eventually be redeemed and bow before him. And we, as subjects of this king, are called to be salt and light in our communities, in hospitals, in schools, in factories, in courts, any other sphere where we may work, so that our communities will be marked by grace and truth and righteousness and mercy. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now normally I close by asking you to pray and then I close in prayer. But today I want us to close by praying together.
the Lord's Prayer. I should have that slide. Since it, the Lord's Prayer, though in very simple form, is asking for the same things that Moses asked for in Deuteronomy 4. And I want to do it a little bit differently today. So let's pray together. Keep your eyes open and let's raise our hands and let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.